CH Radio. Welcome to the Liberty Block, where accountability, freedom, and logic are paramount. Good evening and welcome to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. I'm your host, Elliot Axelman. Our phone number, if you want to be part of the program, is 203-661-5051. For those of you who haven't heard about the events that took place Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia, first and foremost, I have to say that it's very difficult for us to know what exactly happened that day since we weren't there and we don't know who exactly the people even were. We know there was a Unite the Right rally that reportedly involved some supporters of the Confederacy, some neo-Nazis, some other violent nationalists, and some who probably just peacefully supported their heritage of the South and the war between the states. They had, we know that they had gotten a permit to protest the removal of the Confederate monuments. I believe it was the Robert E. Lee statue there. We also know left-wing counter-protesters did not have a permit from the reports didn't have a permit to protest, and they met with the right-wing protesters in a counter-protest and ended up in a brutal battle. We know that the both groups came prepared, at least a, a decent proportion, a decent percentage of both groups came prepared for battle. We know this because when you look at the pictures and the videos, a, a large amount of the right and the left-wing groups both came with sticks and bats and helmets and, and armor prepared for actual violent battle. Anyway, according to reports, James Fields Jr. from Ohio ran over counter-protesters in the street with his car, killing one and injuring 19 more. The video does appear to show an intentional action by the driver, and there are some reports saying that he was attacked while in his car. The video does look like it was violent, and he ran over them, and, and then he backed up pretty quickly to run over some more, or, or to escape the situation. CBS has reported that he is a neo-Nazi. The New York Times reported that he is a neo-Nazi and added that he's a U.S. Army veteran. I found on another source that he he was an Army veteran. He was only in the Army for a few months and he failed out of the basic training. So I heard that he was only there for four months. Anyway, he is being charged with second-degree murder. As reported by Fox News, Fields was denied bond Monday after the Public Defender's Office said it could not represent him, and the judge was forced to find a local attorney to take the case. He did not enter a plea. So that all seems curious to me. Have you heard of a case where the public defender wouldn't defend him? Or No, never heard of such a case. It also always interests me when these things happen, do those who never favor the death penalty, would they favor it here? Sort of like the uh, kid who shot all those people in a church in, I think it was South Carolina a while back. Yeah. Do they favor the death penalty mm -hmm. in a case like this, which they believe, maybe rightly so, is so incredibly egregious? Yeah, in that case, I mean, the gross majority of the left did call for the death penalty for him, and rightly so. And he was executed, right? I don't know. Recently? I, I, think no he, I think he recently was, actually. I, I don't know. I think he's still in appeals, but I don't know. Anyway, so we've seen reports now, if you've been following the case, look, we've been following it a little bit, we've seen reports that the state police were there in, in the riot gear to kind of keep the peace between the protesters and the counter-protesters. And this was state police, so they'd be under the jurisdiction of Governor Terry McAuliffe. We've seen reports that Terry McAuliffe 
told the police to stand down and to wait, to not intervene, to not separate the two. Now, if you ask me, and here I will go towards opinion, if you ask me, I think that in general the left, if not all the politicians in the country, do want chaos because that perpetuates the police state, gives them more justification for more authority, more laws, more restrictions, less liberty, and especially when a, when a Republican in office, uh, yes, I use the term Republican loosely, when Trump is president, this way they can say, see, this is Trump's America. Trump's America. How often have you seen Trump's America in, in, in quotes in all these articles recently? So That's why some of the other pundits have pointed out, rather than talking about any of the issues, all we hear is talk about Trump's tweets and Trump's comments as if somehow he was personally involved and talking about all of his tweets is going to make any difference to the real issues. So, like you said, they capitalize on these things, and it's almost, I don't want to say they want it to happen, but it's almost as if it doesn't quite bother them when there's so much chaos in the streets. Yeah, so I, I hate to defend Trump, but in this case, he did come out within one or two days, and he did say in his speech, and I heard it, I don't have that big an issue with this speech in particular from him. I think most of the stuff he says is wild and generally insane and all over, all over the place, and I don't trust what he says. But this speech he said, I believe, quote, there were bad people on both sides, or there were bad people, violent people on many sides, and they should be condemned. That is pretty much, that's pretty straightforward, and it's true. There were some good people on both sides, and there were some really bad people on both sides who came to hurt people. They came with sticks and helmets and armor to hurt people or, or cause chaos or whatever. So anyway, as reported by the Washington Post, experts said police appeared outnumbered, ill-prepared, and inexperienced. And, and again, like I said, if the police did let them clash with each other, similar to Berkeley, where the police wouldn't defend the, the conservatives. It's interesting because, you know, on this show you talk sometimes against police tactics and the militarized police, mm -hmm. and the police always answer, well, we need all of this equipment so that we will never be in a situation where we're outgunned. So yeah, we need yeah. the SWAT teams and we need the um, armored personnel vehicles and everything else. And then you come to a situation like this. And again, I don't know what happened, but you come to a situation like this and they say, well, sorry, we didn't have enough weaponry or enough protective it, gear and we couldn't get involved. No, that's BS. They, were, they weren't outgunned. I mean, I, I saw some videos. There was a guy there with a Confederate flag with an AR-15. You're telling me one, one chubby guy with an AR-15? says the entire Virginia State Police is outgunned. I don't know, it, and I'm not sure, was the National Guard there? I, I couldn't tell you. Um, I, I know it said state police, and I assume there were some local police there. Mm -hmm. But you're not outgunned. I mean, there are some guys with sticks. There, was some, there were some guys with some, some AR-15s. You're not outgunned. The state police of Virginia probably owns five million guns. Uh, you know what I mean? Well, the question is uh, whether outgunned or whether they don't really want to get into the thick of it because it never ends well and it makes for really, really bad TV when police are legitimately trying to quell a riot. It doesn't look good on TV. Yeah, for sure. A anyway, we'd all agree, I assume, that the police, it, it didn't go as well as it could have. Right? Pe right? People died and there were a fair amount of injuries. They were fighting for a at least a few hours. They were fighting with their sticks. Anyway, well, as... I, I, tend to I tend to believe that the first mistake was allowing any counter-protesters anywhere near the protesters. A, if no one would have counter-protested, no one would have even known Noticed, exactly. that it these crazies thing. are marching and doing whatever crazy thing they do. And B, everybody should know that when you have oil and fire, you keep them as far apart as possible and keep them yep. a few blocks away. And so it's hard to understand why any of this had to happen, even though both sides had so many violent, bad people.
Exactly. And as reported by townhall.com, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe told NPR Monday that he believes state law enforcement did a, quote, magnificent job. And that's just, it, I mean, clearly, I assume everyone listening would disagree. They didn't do a magnificent job. Say something else. Say it's unfortunate. Say there was violence and people were injured, unfortunately. Or to say they did a magnificent job when there was all this fighting and now there's so much more division today than there was last week. And I didn't hear the quote, but considering that two state troopers, I believe, were the ones who were killed in the helicopter crash. Yeah, that too. I, the, I don't see what was the magnificence yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, this, I, mean I, I hate to say it, and I don't mean to make light of it, but the pilot, uh, he, he crashed and killed them, and, and it was like a, he didn't crash into anything. He just, he was flying a helicopter. Because helicopters are very, very dangerous. They're very dangerous, but I, I think it was like a, a, what's the word? There was not a necessary, like a necessity to the crash. He just crashed and killed them. So the pilot did not do a magnificent job flying. That, that's the fact, objectively. Well, I, I don't want to put down the pilot because yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about the pilot. I'm just saying this was not a stunning success for the state police because they lost two of their troopers. And whatever happened, it didn't go as good as it should have gone. So, again, it's yeah. easy for us to sit here and say, but you would think you would plan a lot better and keep these parties apart. Yeah, so as, as the fallout to this over the last few days, uh, Trump is being condemned as much as ever, or more, by the left, for what he said, and I don't quite understand it. I condemn him for about 85% of what he does, but I don't understand the condemnation of him for saying that both sides came to fight, which is frankly true. The one thing we do know from the video is both sides did come to fight, whereas Terry McAuliffe and most of the left, Terry McAuliffe is a Democrat governor of Virginia, in case you didn't know, most of the left is saying they're, they're only condemning the right, the right, the or the right-wing fascists, authoritarians, the neo-Nazis, the white nationalists, the violent confederates. So Terry McAuliffe, in his quote, I have the quote somewhere here, he said, uh, uh, he, the neo-Nazis, the white nationalists, you think you're patriotic, you're not patriots, you have no place here, go home, leave America. He said that. That's, that's correct, I agree, but he should have said, you Antifa, BLM fascists who say, kill all cops, kill all white people, let's murder them all. They also are not patriotic, right? They don't have a place in America either. So he, he should have said both. He did not condemn both. He only condemned one side because he's a lefty and Trump condemns both. So in this scenario, Trump... Uh, well, I think it was Huckabee, Governor Huckabee, who said that even had Trump taken out a pistol and shot the guy in between the eyes, the one who ran that girl over, it still would not have been a strong enough condemnation for nope. Trump. They, they would say, why didn't you condemn Nazism? I, right, nope. yeah, and sadly I think Huckabee was right on this. There was nothing Trump could have done have been enough of a condemnation and again the 24-hour news cycle that's what they're focused on how strong was his condemnation and how many friends is he going to lose and typically the media what they do is they write articles saying this draws a lot of controversy when the only controversy it drew was in the media and then the media reports on the controversy that it itself pretended is there so you'll see front page headlines trump in trouble because of what he mm -hmm. said well, who said he's in trouble? You did. No one knows if. Oh, anybody, of course, they, they prop each other right, up. And they, they don't know if anybody in the country actually gives a hoot, and those who really care are really upset that there's this kind of violence on the street, and that both of these groups exist, and those who don't care are not paying attention and don't care about Trump's tweets. Yeah, unfortunately, we have to step away for a moment. When we come back, we're going to be speaking about the takeaways and the distraction that all of these things really present. These big riots for voters and why we should be paying attention to what legislators are actually getting passed while we're all distracted by these issues. This is the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. The call number is 203-661-5051. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. I'm Elliot Axelman, 
and we're speaking about the fallout from the riots Saturday in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I want to talk about my takeaways personally. I want you to call in 203-661-5051 or comment on the Facebook live stream. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if my five big takeaways from the riots on Saturday are, let me know if they make any sense or if I'm just totally crazy. The big one that I mentioned before the break is these events, they did happen, they're real and they're unfortunate, but don't let them distract you from what legislators around the country are going to do now to capitalize on so many Americans being focused on the unfortunate events that occurred Saturday. So for, as an example, I think uh, the 27th, this is a week or two ago, on July 27th, I believe, Honolulu became the first city in the entire America to criminalize walking across a street with a cell phone. So if you're walking across the street, you have a mobile device, and you look at it, or, or you touch it, you send a text, or you're talking on the phone, you're going to get a ticket. And it, it starts with a ticket. Wasn't that to protect the children? The children? <laughs> yes, it is. So if this actually seems familiar to you, I'm pretty certain I wrote about this on libertyblock.com. I wrote an article about this uh, maybe six months ago or so. I actually think they might have been one of the statists of the month because every month we highlight the biggest statist communist authoritarian in the country. Usually we try to keep it local to New York. But I think I wrote it was Senator Avella, I believe, who is actually the state senator who represents my district in Whitestone and Bayside in Queens. I believe it was him who a few months ago sponsored this bill in the State Senate of New York to s very similar to the Honolulu bill that makes it illegal for people to walk across the street with a cell phone. It starts with a ticket, but what does a ticket mean? It means it's a crime. Your second offense, it's a bigger ticket. Uh, another big issue, besides for all the tickets and they're taking your money away from just crossing the street, and according to the bill, even if you have the green light, even if you have the walk signal, it's still, if you look at your phone, it's still a ticket. But anyway, forget the $50, $100, okay. What happens if a cop approaches you and, and you have your earphones in like many people in New York do and a cop approaches you and tries to give you a ticket and you're not having it? What if you're not in a good mood to put up with that BS? If you're not in a good mood and you resist for, for a moment and you move your hand in a direction that the cop doesn't like, what happens? Like we've seen all over the country so many times, it, it's certainly possible that you end up dead. Why? Because of a law that only will become law in a few months because it's going to pass the state senate and the state assembly. Governor Cuomo will happily sign it into law. This is going to be law in a few months. Actually, I was looking for the bill to find it. I couldn't find it the other day. So Tony Avella, the state senator, sponsored the bill a few months ago. Because the session ended a few months ago, it was, present, it was sponsored again in the state senate by another state senator. I forget his name. Some other statist. So, so now the current bill had to be presented again because it didn't pass the committee last time. But it, it's probably going to pass. So this is just one example, and, and there are thousands of laws in New York that are unbelievably intrusive and statist and authoritarian and borderline communist. This is one example of why we need to pay attention. So a lot of us crazy libertarians, when a crisis happens, we, we our first instinct is to say, okay, yeah, that's bad, it is terrible, and it matters, and let's work on it, but pay attention even more so now to what's going on in your state capital, what's going on in your city council right now because they're going to get something passed while we're not paying attention. So actually, what did Baltimore just do? Baltimore passed a law within one day. Well, they not they only passed the law, they executed it. And they executed it. it. How about this? Have any of our listeners, have you seen a city pass a law and execute it within one day? I, typically, government takes, what, a year, 10 years to drag their feet, 20 years to get something done? But the Baltimore City Council, they voted on it, like, y yesterday. I think it was yesterday they voted on it, and during the night they had 
a private contractor take down some monuments. So Baltimore has a fair amount of Confederate monuments, so they took another one down. So passed the law, got a vote on it, and uh, took it down right away. Are you saying that they could actually fix potholes at the same speed? No, no, no. Come on now. Come on now. That's, that's more complicated. That's more complicated. No, fixing okay. a pothole is difficult. They can't do that. Listen, New York City DOT only has $947 million. It costs more to fix a pothole. They don't, they don't have enough money for it. So, I mean, this, this is just one takeaway. My second big takeaway is the left loves this because then they can say this is Trump's America. Trump's America is dangerous. Trump's America is divisive. And, and they just love chaos in general. My third big takeaway is I saw someone mention this on Facebook the other day. How can we learn from our mistakes if we erase history? And it's an interesting point, actually. I'm, I'm still not sure how I feel about it. It may or may not make sense, but it's worth at least debating for a minute. If they erase all, all of the records of the Civil War, how could we learn from the mistake of the slavery? It's interesting. And the next one is the a big takeaway is free speech should always be protected and violence should always be condemned. And again, Trump did mention this. You have to give him credit where it's due, whereas McCulloch did not. He didn't mention free speech. He didn't say violence should be condemned. So, like I mentioned, if we erase history... Yeah, like I, like I mentioned, if we erase the history, that is an extremely slippery slope because who, who's the one, uh, which entity is taking down the monuments? It's the government. So do you trust government to erase the parts of history they don't like? This, like I thought about the other day, is very, very similar to what I remember reading in, or in 1984 by George Orwell. I'm actually going to read a quote where he says, in a fully communist society, George Orwell's 1984, it's a book about a fully communist society. And by book, I mean it's becoming something of a prophecy in, in today's world. Plus, we actually have a phone call before I read the George Orwell quote. We have Jack from Stanford calling in. Welcome to the Liberty Block, Jack. Hey, I got to tell you, I'm digging this program. I'm glad I came across it today. Oh, thank you so much. That's good to hear. Yeah, and hey, George Orwell, I mean, Eric Blair and everything. I can't wait to hear that quote and everything from it, too, because it is coming in and, you know, the brave new world and all that stuff. It's all coming true. But I'll tell you what I just did. I just called Campbell's Soup Company. I just bought 100 shares in it, too. I called their main number and told them, I said, I'm going to vote against their chairperson going forward. And tomorrow I'll let investor relations know. I may not make a big difference, but no soup for them. I'm buying no more Campbell, and I'm going to go to all those other firms and buy a block, 100 shares in each of them so I can start voting against them. When your president asks you to serve, you serve. That is very, very interesting to hear. Thank you so much for your call, Jack. That's very interesting because I, ju I just heard the news about the, uh, the Trump's business council. So let me, let me read this, this quote from Orwell. One could not learn from history, from architecture, any more than one could learn it from books, statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets. Anything that might throw light upon the past had been systematically altered. This quote, would you not agree that this is pretty much a prophecy of what's happening today with the federal government, with, with the, the government and state governments taking down monuments of the past? Well, it's not only the government, it's, it's the, the mob which is taking down statues even when the government doesn't get around to it. And as I've written or posted, some of this very vaguely reminds people of the Cultural Revolution in China, where the frenzied mobs were whipped up, as you said, sort of like 1984, the two-minute hate. They were whipped up into this frenzy of destroying any cultural artifacts from the past and saying almost by definition, anything that happened before now is bad and we need to root it out. And that's seemingly what's happening in America way much, much faster. I know that Mark Levin the other day was saying within 15 years we won't have statues and memorials to Jefferson and Washington. 
And then he corrected himself last night, and he said, whoops, it was 15 minutes mm-hmm. that apparently Al Sharpton was already calling on television to take down the Jefferson Memorial and Washington Monument or anything that in any way memorializes slave owners. Yeah, and, and they can do this with not only slave owners, which is wrong, but they can do this with all the conservatives. They can take down those monuments. I actually, like you might know if you listened last week, I was on vacation. I was driving out to Wyoming with my brother. We stopped off in South Dakota at Mount Rushmore, and it was, um, um, like I mentioned to my brother, it was the first monument that we had seen together, the first big thing that it, it stunned me, knocked me to the floor. Unbelievable to see the, the Mount Rushmore. And, of course, if you know me very well, you might know that I was mainly uh, impressed by the, the two on the left and not really the two on the, on the right side, which is Teddy Roosevelt and um, Abraham Lincoln. It was, it was more about uh, Washington and, and Jefferson. So, anyway... Most of these issues in and, and 1984 and the dangers of communism and erasing the past are not generally taught in most public schools, most private schools, most universities, and that's the issue. Americans are no longer educated about the dangers of communism, the importance of free speech. In fact, state colleges make it a point to crush free speech when people question big government or when they question communism or when they're libertarian or conservative. Well, even if they don't crush it, they provide safe spaces so you don't have to hear Yeah, it. that's true. But, but they also they, they try not to let these speakers mm-hmm. come in. We all know the, the trouble people like Ben Shapiro have coming onto these campuses. In addition to not properly educating children about liberty and the historic insults to liberty and the damage that communism has caused, modern public schools and most colleges do not even prepare our children for real life in general, and they don't even prepare them – they don't train them to – create value and actually work. And, and that brings us, brings us into our next half of the program. In the second half hour after the break in a minute, we're going to have on Derek McGill, the director of marketing for Praxis. As you know, the Praxis program is a sponsor of Liberty Block, and they are very libertarian. And they're a 12-month program that the first six months is training, the second six months is apprenticeship, and you get paid while you're an apprentice, and you learn how to actually create value for your employer. And after this 12-month program, the... of the participants actually get a $50,000 a year job with the company that they're apprenticing for. So Derek from Praxis will be telling us all about it after the break. This is the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. We'll be back in two minutes. Well, if no one among us is capable of governing himself, then who among us has the capacity to govern someone else? That's what I'm saying. Welcome back to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. I'm Elliot Axelman, and we're speaking about education and not properly educating our children and our students in America. And we're going to switch over more to the economic and the practical part of it. And our amazing sponsor, the Praxis Program, educates people to actually create value. And like their CEO says, it teaches them to become their own walking resume. So we're welcoming in now Derek McGill, the Director of Marketing for Praxis. Welcome to the Liberty Block, Derek. Hey, Elliot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It was a, uh, it was a great quote in the beginning, a uh, little soundbite. Reminds me of that Bastiat uh, quote. I think it's, uh, you who would reform everything, why don't you reform yourselves first? Absolutely. And, and that quote Reagan, Reagan just mentioned, I've said that so much, and, and that's what I said. That's what I'm talking about. This is what this is all about. If none of us can be trusted to, to govern our own lives, how can one of us be trusted to govern 320 million lives? So, <laughs> so anyway, about, about Praxis, could you just tell us how Praxis got started? The CEO is Mr. Morehouse? Yeah, Isaac Morehouse. Um, Praxis was founded about four years ago now, and you know, he can always tell it a little better than I can. But, you know, in essence, 
he had been spending, uh, you know, for the last 10 years or so of his life working in, in sort of nonprofit-related space, doing fundraising, also working with a lot of students uh, kind of around the country at universities. And that's actually how I got connected with him. I was a uh, student at the University of Michigan, and he was teaching a sort of uh, – pro-liberty uh, philosophy discussion group on a, a weekend, and um, we attended that. And uh, I think you know, throughout his sort of career in the nonprofit uh, educational space, you know, he realized a couple things. And number one was students are bored in school. They're you know, getting a, you know, introduced to a bunch of horrible ideas, uh, if they're being introduced to uh, ideas at all. Um, they're graduating with a ton of debt very few skills and experiences that help them, you know, take the next step in their life once they've graduated college. Um, and then on the other side, he sees all these, you know, business owners who he's doing fundraising with who are telling him we can't find enough, you know, skilled young people to, to hire. Is that you know, what they call the skills gap? Is that huge. it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. you know, it's... it's, it's uh, uh, Essentially, you know, what, you know, there's this myth in the country where it's like, you know, businesses aren't hiring. You know, we're told that all the time. There's no jobs. Nobody's hiring. Companies aren't looking. That's, you know, there might be some truth to that in some industries, I think. But in general, the trend that we've seen and one of the reasons practice was started was, was to solve the opposite problem was there's just not enough skilled young people. Not only skilled young people, but I would say this speaks to maybe your, some of your earlier points. I was just listening uh, a little while ago. Kids with the right kinds of mindset who can come into a role and become a value creator and a self-starter and really take charge of their job and uh, work hard to make sure they're producing more value than they take out in salary. That's a rarity these days. And that's, I think, you know, in essence, why Praxis was, was sort of started. Um, so we started four years ago now. Uh, it, it's been, you know, a slog in the beginning. It was, it was really tough to kind of uh, market it. We were in a space where, you know, college is one of those few completely unchallenged orthodoxies in today's world. Um, but as we've grown and as the years have gone by, we've become, you know, uh, uh, you know, quite successful and have had a lot of amazing stories. We've had over 200 people go through the program and are uh, growing quite well now. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I was going to ask how many people have done it. And on the site, it says 98% of participants who finished this 12-month program were offered a $50,000 a year job right after the program with their partner company that they apprenticed for. Yeah, we have an average income of about $50,000 a year for a 19-year-old, uh, which is our kind of average graduation age. Wow. Um, and 98% employment rate right now. So we've been, you know, we, I, we, don't, we don't say it a whole lot, but I can say here we like, we like to think we're, we're kind of kicking the pants off college right now and doing something that no yep. university uh, you can, know, uh, I actually, can offer. I actually wrote an article a few months ago debating whether college is worth it, and it's on libertyblock.com. And in this research, I found that the average individual income for U.S. employees over 25, so people who should be making a lot of money, is $30,000. So you have $50,000 for these 19-year-olds with one year of training. It's, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, you can't even compare to, to the average person doing college. No, and uh, I'll take it a step further, too, because, you know, you paint the picture now, not just in the immediate moment where, you know, you have a 19-year-old, he's making $50,000 a year. That's great. But even if you weren't, even if you were making $30,000 a year or $25,000 a year, he's 19 years old. Mm -hmm. By the time he would have graduated college, he's going to have four, five, six years of work experience under his belt, which is absolutely incomparable to what the average college student is, is, uh, is graduating with. And you can add on, on top of that, you know, being in the workforce, I would say, allows you to avoid, kind of, again, to go back to your earlier point, allows you to avoid a lot of the, uh, you know, frankly, the bad 
bad material and the bad uh, methodologies that are in today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that are, you know, I would say, um, and, and, and maybe even more broadly than leftism, I think anti-conceptualism. Um, and, and, you know, more broadly, they are, they are not only not preparing you, I, I would say, they're actually making it harder for you to succeed once you graduate. You know, it's hard to graduate from a, uni- a university where, you know, you've been told the entire time that markets are evil, that business is bad, that profit mm-hmm. is bad. And then you're expected to go out into the business it's world. It's anti-market and education, and then they expect you to make it in, in the free market. Yeah. yeah they, I mean, they poison you totally against insane. it. Yeah. So exactly. which type of fields do you train your participants in? Well, so you know, we have a, kind of a different concept around you know, early career development, and I think the universities sort of uh, have. You know, kind of the traditional thinking behind this is you pick a major, and then you go into that field you know, that corresponds to that major. I don't know if it's super helpful to do that nowadays because – the way the job market is and the way uh, opportunities are, and then the fact that when you're a young person, you really don't know what you want to do. It's mm-hmm. very challenging, I think, to pick, uh, pick a field. So what we're doing more is you know, we have tons of different companies and tons of different fields ranging from, you know, Bitcoin payment processing to uh, medical technology to uh, marketing firms to firearms companies to, you know, SaaS companies that are venture-backed in San Francisco. It's pretty wide-ranging as far as the specific kinds of jobs they go into. We're looking for jobs that are really, you know, uh, offer highly transferable business skills and experiences so that when you're 18, 19 years old, you can go into a company, you can get, you know, a lot of really good skills that you can take into any kind of endeavor later on in your life when you start to get a better picture of what you want to do. Those things include, you know, marketing, uh, sales, operations, general kind of business roles, um, some creative roles, and then as well as, you know, the occasional technical role, and then a lot of like... uh, uh, I would say, well, I don't know if I already mentioned this, but operations kinds of roles. So can you walk me through? I call you up. I'm really interested in your program. I sign the bottom line. What happens? Yeah, so <clears throat> you, there is an application process. Um, we have to you know, make sure that uh, we can help you and that we think you can keep up with the challenges of the program. It's uh, you know quite difficult. It's not something that most people are uh, necessarily ready for immediately, um, especially after years of you know, public schooling. It's very challenging to suddenly, you know, wake up and then go into an apprenticeship role, which is why I, I would say it's so imperative that you start earlier, because that learning curve is going to be there whether you're 19 years old or whether you're a 24-year-old graduate with a women's studies degree. So, you know, um, I, w- I would say basically, you know, you go onto the website. Uh, once you've kind of decided that you want to join the program, you can apply online. Uh, you'll go through basically an application process where you'll interview with some team members. You'll submit a resume and some other materials. We're not really looking for traditional academic metrics. We're, we're typically looking more for, you know, coachability, intellectual curiosity, a history of engaging with, uh, with big ideas or with some kind of project in a consistent way. Um, a little bit of work experience is always helpful, for example. Um, people who have a forward tilt mindset, <clears throat> meaning that, you know, they don't want to just sit around and wait to be told what to do. You know, they, they can take orders, but they also, in, in the absence of orders, they actually want to take charge of their job. Yeah, yeah and, and really, you know, think, how can I create value? You know, we're looking for the kind of person, for example, who when they see a business, they're thinking not like, you know, how can I get a job necessarily? That's, that's important, too. But they're also thinking, how does this business make money? You know, what's their profit margin? Mm-hmm. All of those kinds of things. That, that, that's a, a good indicator of someone who will be successful in our program. Um, once you've, you know, gone through the application process, if you're accepted, you're welcome to start basically at the beginning of the next month. Uh, the full program costs $11,000. So it's, you know, a fraction of the cost of college. And it happened, you know, goes through much, much quicker than a normal college course as well. But do you have free nice beer? Is, no, <laughs> no. I don't know if beer is free in college either. Uh, it is sometimes. No, <laughs> uh, no, uh, no basket weaving courses. No, uh, 
you know, uh, boring general ed or race and ethnicity requirements. Yeah. So uh, where, have, where does uh, this training take place? Uh, so the, the boot camp, the six-month boot camp is completed remotely. And so it's nice. You can basically have a full-time job if you want or a part-time job or, you know, kind of, uh, you know, relatively do it on your own schedule. And that includes a ton of different stuff to prepare you to enter the professional world. So, you know, in addition to going through some software tools and other kinds of business tools that you'll need on the job, you're also going through things like professional communication, professional writing, personal branding, how to sell and market yourself in the workforce, how to go out and get professional opportunities, uh, how to succeed in an interview process, how to learn new skills on the fly. Uh, you're taking on a number of different personal projects, like building out a website for yourself that, again, showcases yourself to the world and presents you in a way that makes employers actually want to hire you instead of just having you know, a piece of paper and a college degree. Um, once you've completed that, you'll be placed at a, a business around the country. We have businesses all around the U.S. and most major startup hubs. So, you know, San Francisco, Atlanta, Austin, San Diego, um, Chicago, New York, you name it, we probably have a business partner there. So most people and, probably don't uh, have to move when they, when they do this program? They don't necessarily have to, but I would say probably 60% of people do move. Okay. Um, it's a good experience to get out of the house. You know, I think um, it's a good experience to kind of get out of the, uh, you know, the bubble of uh, <coughs> your high school friends, maybe, and, and kind of go out and, and try a new city. So we do recommend you do it. But we have a lot of participants who don't relocate, and you know, depending on where you live, we can certainly work to accommodate you there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you said the program costs eleven thousand, and this is a twelve-month program, right? Yep. So most people are paying about a thousand dollars a month. Okay. Um, and the cool thing is, you're making fifteen thousand dollars during the six-month apprenticeship at minimum. So some participants make more, but we guarantee you'll make fifteen thousand dollars a year. Okay. So during that, during, that, during you, that six months, during that six months. How do you pick where I apprentice? Good question. Um, so, like I said earlier, the majority of our participants don't really know what they want to do. And so all of our business partners, like we don't select business partners that we don't think can give the, uh, the participant a really good introduction to business, you know, you know, really well-rounded experience that then they can take somewhere else if they decide they want to go. So, you know, we're looking for, for example, uh, you know, good CEOs, experienced uh, executive-level team members who want to take an active interest in this participant's uh, or this apprentice's education and help make them a valuable employee. We're looking for people like that uh, rather than just your average company. <clears throat> now, regarding how we actually find places, during the boot camp, you're going through a series of uh, workshops to kind of help you figure where, where you want to go much better. You're working with your advisors and your uh, the practice placement team. And from there, you'll typically interview with about 10 different companies and you'll start getting some offers from some of those companies. And once you get some offers, it's kind of uh, your choice where you want to go. So this is actually a big element of mentoring? Absolutely. I mean, the whole apprenticeship concept is, you know, part uh, learning, learning by doing, but also learning by shadowing. So, you know, you're not only there creating value at a company and, and you know, taking on a job at that company, but you're also working with practice advisors who are experienced professionals themselves. And you're getting to, you know, learn directly under successful professionals at that company. So if you're in a marketing role, you're working directly under, you know, a director of marketing or some equivalent who can actually, again, help show you the ropes, help show you what it means to be a successful professional, help show you how to be a successful marketer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, ha- we have, sorry, we have a question on Facebook, one of the commenters on the live stream, it, and it asks, how long are the internships, the apprenticeship? Did you say it was six months of the boot camp and then six months of the apprenticeship? Yeah. Is that always how it goes? Yep, it's, it's six-month apprenticeship. Um, that's kind of the, the basically really the time frame that we found is best for our participants. 
beyond six months, the majority of them get job offers anyway. I would say right now a lot of them are getting job offers at four or five months full-time. From um, that company that they apprentice this, for? Yep, exactly. Um, and the companies are, are, are thrilled because um, – you know, they're getting someone who they don't have to go through the traditional recruiting me- uh, mechanisms that typically can cost anywhere from three to ten thousand dollars per person they hire. Um, they're getting a young person who really wants to learn, who's you know sort of uh, like I said earlier, a forward tilt mindset. And so we have business partners who regularly come back and take another one, and uh, we have business partners with five, ten, uh, fifteen employees. Now people now. do one internship the whole six months, or what if it doesn't work out in a specific place? What happens? <laughs> Well, so, yeah, I'll, I'll address two parts of that. Number one, um, you know, it, it's more of an apprenticeship than an internship in the sense that there, there is more of a trajectory to this relationship. And I would say it's, it's more hands-on than just a, a, a typical internship, which might include a lot more administrative work and assistant work and uh, copy-getting work, which is nothing necessarily wrong with that. But you're really going to be deep diving into actually the roles that you want to go into. And so I would say it's a bit more intensive than an internship. Um, regarding if it doesn't work out, that really depends, you know, on the situation. Uh, if the business partner, for example, were to whatever whatever reason something happened and it weren't, uh, it were no longer a good fit for our participant, and we could certainly place you somewhere else. If it was on the participant's end where they did something that you know would would sort of disqualify them from working for that company, and we probably wouldn't be able to place you anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Now it's interesting because Laser, the usual co-host here has been for years and years, um, how should I put it, he's, re- he's read books about the case against adolescence and against the whole educational system. And one of the points that it makes is when you're in the educational system, you're hanging out with your peers who are the same age, doing the yeah. same thing you're doing, and you have no exposure to people in the real world, people way, way ahead of you that you can aspire to be like and learn from adults rather than you're hanging out with the same 19-year-old kid that you grew up with, and there's no growth. So yeah. there's no yeah, growth maturity. That's a great point. I mean, uh, and we've written about this on the practice blog before. Uh, we kind of define it as a, you know, and, and we've written about it in the context of uh, networking. So the example that we like to give is you know, college is always said to be the best place for networking. You go there so you can meet good people. But, you know, that's more of a horizontal network. And like you mm-hmm. said, it's people who are all your same age, all your same background. They've done nothing different than you in the their entire life they've all played the same academic game in order to get into the university they've all done what they're told there's really not a whole lot of differences at that age versus a vertical network like Praxis, where you're going into a company and there'll be some people your age as well probably who you know are also there but there'll also be uh you know a 50 year old ceo and there'll be you know an experienced uh, marketer and there'll be you know a cfo who's worked for a number of different companies and a bunch of other interesting people who have done interesting things created a lot of value and now you have a vertical network of people who can, you know, number one, like you said, teach you a ton about what it means to be a successful professional, a lot more than anyone your own age could teach you, but also who could actually get you real meaningful opportunities. And I know from my own life, you know, I, I dropped out of college and some of the best opportunities that I've ever had mm-hmm. have come through, uh, you know, people like Isaac, our CEO, and other people that I've worked with who are 10, 15, 20 years my senior. Yeah. So what do you tell the parents when they say, this is all really nice, it's wonderful, <laughs> but you're not going to get a job if you don't have a degree, and nowadays it has to be at least a master's degree? Mm-hmm. How do you answer that? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, one, we point to our results. I think that's the best answer. You know, we, we can get philosophical and abstract, but in the end of the day, we can point to our results and say, here's what we've accomplished. Um, you know, I'm a dropout myself, and I've never had any issues getting career opportunities. Uh, but I would say, 
you know, we, we, we break it down in, in, a, in a way that I think is, is, you know, people are able to understand, which is, look, the degree is a signaling mechanism, and there's a difference between expressed opinions and actual opinions. And so when a business owner, for example, says, we require a college degree, we want someone with a college degree, or we want someone with five years of work experience, mm-hmm. they don't really want that. What they want is proof is that they're competent. Can, <laughs> yes, they want someone who can create more value than they take out on salary. And the degree and the experience is one way of looking for it. But once you understand the actual desire, now you can start to figure out how can I show that I can be capable of delivering on that desire uh, in a different way. And that's what we teach people to do at practice, and that's why we've been so successful. Exactly. That's sort of our secret sauce, and, I would say. And I'm going to quote your CEO, Isaac Morehouse. He says when he speaks, when he goes to speak to people, or he was on Fox News, he says a degree is just a piece of paper that – tells people that you are roughly as competent as the other thousand of your classmates who have the same exact piece of paper. Yeah. That's all it is, and, th- and that's pretty, pretty meaningless. And, and my brother also, yep. he's, he's also a paramedic, and he's going to work in flight and critical care soon. He's doing just fine, and he also was a college dropout. He dropped out a few times. So we actually have to go to break. I'm going to leave everyone with this thought. Derek, we're going to hold you on over until the end of the yep. show. I'm going to leave everyone with this thought that Derek mentioned. You might not have caught. The program for 12 months costs 11000 but throughout the program, you will make 15000 at least. So college costs a net of 60000 This program costs a net of, well, you're okay. making 4000 But for people who had a public school education, you may need to explain that that <laughs> nets you a profit. Sorry. I shouldn't say profit. That's a dirty word. But you will come out with $4,000 more toward, towards your new iPhone or case. So you win by going to Praxis. Yeah, you, you will gain money throughout that year instead of losing like 50000 a year. So we'll be back in two minutes. This is the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. Welcome back to the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH. I just got word from my engineer that my now uh, lost brother, who's all the way in Wyoming, who just started to work there as a paramedic in central Wyoming, called in, and he has a question for Derek. Go ahead, Laser. Cool. Hey, guys. How are you all? Excellent. So, Derek, I'm, I'm super glad that we got you on the show. I really wish I still could have been around on the East Coast just for this. I got to yeah, say that. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, so I, I love what you guys do, and when my brother first found you guys, I was immediately a huge fan. Um, I, I'm personally the king of dropping out of school. I dropped out of <laughs> high school three times in three states. I started college, and I dropped out of that, too. And as my brother said, well, I like to think I've put my life relatively together. I'm living in a pretty decent house with a really decent job where I want to be, and turns out that I don't really need all that. I may go back to school at some point to go to law school, but at the moment I'm living pretty comfortably just fine without it. And how much debt do you have, Laser? Oh, I have exactly zero debt. I owe nobody anything (laughs) in this whole world. All of my money is mine. So if I had known that something like you guys existed when I was 18, and that brings me to a question I'll ask you in a moment, I'd have jumped all over it. I didn't get into emergency medicine until I was 20. I would have loved something like what you guys offer when I was younger than that. Do you guys have a low cap on your age limit? Do you have to be at least 18? Uh, no, we don't have an official low cap at all. We, we've taken participants as young as 16 before. Um, I would say, like, like I said, the average is 18 or 19 years old. Um, but we don't really you know, restrict it. I think the, the hard cap that school tends to impose you know, all it does is hold the best people back. And that's not our goal. You know, we want to be available for people that we think we can actually help. And if we believe that you know we can help you at 16, 17 years old, we'll absolutely take you into the program. That's fantastic to hear. And I think it's important that 
that be pitched in a certain way? Because there are a lot of kids who were just like me, and at 16 years old, I was out of school, and I went and I got a job at 16 because, well, turns out I didn't like not having the money to do things. So I got a job, yeah. and I bought my own mm-hmm. first car, and I bought myself a laptop, and I paid for myself to go shoot pool five nights a week, and that's actually how I learned geometry. But <laughs> true story, hated math until I started shooting pool. Pool was all angles. I did go back to school, and I was great at geometry because it was just all looked like pool balls in my head. I think it's very important that you guys push the point of there are a lot of parents around the country who have 16-year-old, 17-year-old dropouts, and they're all upset. And even if they can put up with it, they're like, well, go do something with your Mm -hmm. life. And that something can be skipping a few years ahead of everybody else with practice, getting on the job train, getting into the workforce, learning a skill, learning several skills maybe, and putting them in a position to succeed when everybody else is just going to college to begin to put themselves in a position to maybe potentially succeed in four to eight years. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So, so what you what you both mentioned, and Laser, this applies to you because we both got involved in EMS. Well, you're a year and a half older than me. We both got involved. I was just finishing up high school. I was 18. Maybe I just turned 19. I just got involved in EMS. By the time I was 24, I had five, six years experience in EMS in my field. And like Derek, you mentioned the horizontal versus vertical networking. My network was other paramedics, firefighters, my captain in my service, and, and other medics. Some medics are 50 years old and have a lot of experience, and doctors and nurses. And when I, when I was 24, I had a, a vertical network, and I had five years' experience in my field, whereas the traditional exactly. 24-year-old has a lot of debt but no experience in their field. <laughs> it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, and speaking to about uh, the, the point about young, young dropouts and you know, 17, 18 years old, 16, 17, 18 years old have dropped out of high school. But say, you know, it's, it's, it's really tragic the way these kids are, are treated in today's world. You know, you, you fail a test and it's like you're a criminal, you know, or you, you drop out and everybody looks at you like, you know, your, your life is over. You know, you're being told at 17 years old that you're nothing. You'll never be able to do anything else. It's very hard. So I, I, I've seen it firsthand how much, uh, I guess, practice has, has freed the minds of people. Even if, even if they're unable to do the program themselves, we get feedback all the time from young kids who have told us, you know, just, just kind of reading your blog alone has totally changed our lives. Yeah, absolutely. So we only have one minute left. The music's already starting, so they're kicking us off. So if you want to find out more info, you can go to discoverpraxis.com slash liberty. You can find out all the info. You, you put in your email. They'll, they'll send you all the information about it. It is competitive, but you can apply. And as always, check out libertyblock.com for our blog and all of our info and updates. Derek, thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a lot of fun and very informative. Yeah, thank you guys so much. I enjoyed this. Absolutely. Have a good night. This is the Liberty Block on 1490 WGCH and WGCH.com anywhere. Until next Wednesday, have a good night.